Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of my series on Capital Volume 1. This chapter is, of course, about money. But before we get into this chapter intimately, I will start with a little short review of where we've come so far. Value is, of course, determined by the socially necessary labor time it takes to produce a commodity. Value, the average amount of time it takes to make something, is the basis for commodity exchange. Money becomes the universal equivalent of value to make the exchange of different commodities easier. In being the universal equivalent, all other commodities realize and understand their value through money. If you're in the capitalist system to make subsistence, you labor to create a commodity that can be sold for money, and then you use that money to buy your subsistence. Money rules the world, essentially. And that is unlike any other mode of production. For the most part, the division of labor was not set up through exchange and making money and then buying your subsistence. It is importantly only because different commodities can be expressed in terms of value and compared through that value, that money can be the universal metric of exchange. So not the other way around. This is generally, the, the other way around is generally how we tend to think of things, that it's only because of money that I can compare, you know, a can of soda to a candy bar. Otherwise, it's purely arbitrary. And again, the Marxist response to that is no. It is only because of value, because through commodity exchange, you compare the average amount of time it, it takes to make one thing with the average amount of time it takes to make another thing, that you can have money. And money becomes a sort of a, the set way of understanding the different values of different things. Gold is, of course, generally chosen as the universal commodity. When you say that a bushel of wheat is worth half a pound of gold, you are able to compare wheat to all other commodities through gold, which is very convenient if you produce wheat for a living and want to make your subsistence through purchasing your food, your clothes, etc. So we're still keeping the incoherencies of the accidental form of value to go back to this development in chapter one. You know, gold is still the master of wheat when wheat is being exchanged. The wheat needs the gold to understand its own use. You know, when you, when you produce a thing for exchange on the market, you look at that thing and you see money, right? But of course, it also adds the sort of totality within the expanded form where you can compare all commodities to your one commodity. That's a short little overview. Um, we can now move on to the chapter itself. Um, we'll start with the difference between price and value. So comparing a commodity with the money commodity, so usually gold, gives it its price. Price is an invisible or ideal element of a commodity. You know, it has nothing to do with the physical qualities of the thing, but the sort of the human social relationships behind the thing. But nevertheless, price still exists empirically. Even if it is socially constructed, it cannot be ignored. This is a thing people don't understand with the word socially constructed. Your credit score is socially constructed, but ignoring your credit score is not a good idea. For instance, uh, before a commodity has been realized through exchange into money, so before a commodity has been sold, it has an ideal price, which is the amount that it theoretically should exchange for money. Importantly, its ideal price is based on its value, average amount of time it takes to produce the commodity, compared to the average amount of time it takes to produce, let's say, a certain amount of gold. But importantly, price and ideal price 
are not necessarily the same, and there are a multitude of different factors that alter the actual price that a thing is exchanged at. And this relates to complications, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but complications in the realization stage of value. The realization stage is the stage at which your commodity is exchanged for money. You realize the value in money, and you can use that value and, and invest it in a multitude of different things. It may be realized for a different amount of value than it theoretically should be, but again, that is a, a product of a multitude of factors that you know neoclassical economics, for instance, goes over in a much more intimate detail than Marx. This isn't to say that Marx is wrong for not doing so. It's to say that Marx isn't really concerned with the intimate details of, let's say, the fluctuations of supply and demand and how that affects price, because his point about the social nature of production, how domination and exploitation of the working class is required for this commodity exchange isn't discredited by that sort of um, intimate analysis of, of the different ways in which actual prices fluctuate. Marx is still going to say that the circulation of value is what is required for the system to run. And I guess we'll, we'll go into that in more detail later on. But back to value and price. Money is both a unit of the, a measurement of value and a standard of price. These are not the exact same thing, even if they're very connected. So money is a unit of measure insofar as it serves as the measurement of value of another commodity. Commodities see how valuable they are based upon their comparison with the money commodity. Money is then a standard of price insofar as it is an equivalent to other commodities in physical gold. So the difference here being that value is an abstract social relationship and price or the quantity of the weight of gold is concrete. And again, the difference here is between ideal price, comparison between value, and real price. The actual amount of physical gold or a representation of gold that you can get for your commodity. Regardless, things are of course exchanged discordantly from their exact values. Again, there are many different factors that alter the real prices off of a perfect course of value. But again, Marx will say you fundamentally need value to be able to exchange things. The social division of labor is determined by it moves around value. So with like supply and demand, for instance, we can imagine a case in which let's say you produce a coat. Where could I possibly have thought of that example? And let's say too many people make coats. There's little demand and there is high supply and I can't sell my coat. Well, because I am producing coats to realize their value within money, and that no longer works, I have to change something because my code is no longer sellable. So the social division of labor within the capitalist system offsets production when things aren't being exchanged at close to their value. And eventually these hiccups in value circulation, let's say related to supply and demand, are compensated. And again, with the idea of value, socially necessary labor time, that Marx is claiming is the primary sort of force behind production, it is much easier to conceptualize how production alters itself than if you are merely doing sort of neoclassical economics. It is also easier to understand how domination and exploitation are required for this system, but that is a, a later chapter, of course. Prices can also exist for a thing without that thing having any value as well. Intellectual products have no value, but they have a price. You can charge a rent on their monopoly use or on their regular use. Unused land, for instance, has a price as well. 
But oftentimes, Marx says, things with no value, so again, there's no socially necessary labor time to produce them, and a price, have a latent value relationship within them. So, you know, with an intellectual product, for instance, there is no value because what is the socially necessary labor time to produce Paradise Lost by Milton? You know, it doesn't really make sense. So even though it has no value, you could buy the rights to a book if you're like an industrial capitalist and make money off of extracting surplus value through book production. You buy the monopoly rent on the intellectual product, on the story, as a part of your overall overhead to ensure that the product you will later sell has a good use because, you know, it's a good story. Same goes for unused land, for instance, that there is a potential for a value relationship to be done there. And of course, things that have prices, no values, only have an imaginary price. And that that price is not set directly by the law of value. It's important to understand, because I think a lot of the sort of layman critiques of the labor theory of value, which again, as I went over before, Marx does not subscribe to the labor theory of value, but the layman critiques of the Marxist labor theory of value are like, oh, well, what about this thing that doesn't have value, but also has a price? And what about these situations in which the real price of a thing has nothing to do with, or seemingly nothing to do with, its value? Again, Marx, of course, considers those things because he's one of the most significant thinkers of the 19th century. You think he made an economic system and a second year undergrad would be able to create a point that he would not have thought of? Like, anyways, moving on. Uh, a seller of a commodity knows that their commodity, of course, has a price and that it must be exchanged for that price. The way in which you realize the value of your commodity is through exchange. Yet actually selling things isn't so easy. And, you know, there's a lot of external factors that you have to deal with in the realization stage. So the uncertainty in producing goods in this environment, where the social nature of labor requires one to sell goods for money if they are to survive. In a, in a capitalist system, if you can't sell your commodity, you can't realize its value into money and you're fucked, right? So the ability for money to properly circulate is incredibly crucial for capitalism. And considering this, gold itself is quite hard to exchange for everything. You know, imagine you go to the supermarket and you have a little bag of gold and like, you know, one carton of eggs is a very tiny amount. You know, it's using gold itself as a means of circulation in, in these types of instances is very impractical and it would be a problem for the circulation of value. As a solution to this, states will set the conversion rate between the money commodity, so gold, and other things, you know, less precious metals, paper money, credit, etc. States obviously play a very important role in regulating prices and creating these conversion rates between the main money commodity, gold, and things to represent this commodity. Marx's views on the state and its role in capitalist commodity production and circulation are relatively few and far in between, which is generally because he intended on making a book about the role of the state and then he died before he managed to create it. But importantly, states will set conversion rates between the main money commodity, usually gold, and other things to represent it, not necessarily based on the value of those things, but instead on a fixed proportional rate. And we'll go over um, the, a lot of the details about paper money later, but how one exchanges paper money for other commodities has nothing to do with paper money's value. You know, paper money is very easy to make. And the state is able to do this, and this exchange can happen, because it guarantees a certain conversion between these things and the main money commodity. 
And such a conversion could, of course, not happen by the actions of the market alone, because you are exchanging these less valuable metals in paper money, etc., not based upon their value, but on a representation of value set in another thing. And because commodity circulation in the market is based on value, obviously, the market cannot do that itself. This is also another important example of the differences between money as a, a standard of price and a measurement of value. Paper money is a measurement of value for other commodities, but only because it is a representation of gold. And of course, we no longer use the gold standard. And Marx explicitly said that that was impossible, which, you know, cut him some slack. He's a very old man. And there are, of course, many Marxist explanations for fiat currency and how it comes about. And I can maybe go over those later. Maybe I'll do an episode on that because it's a very, like, this episode is already very big and it's a complicated topic. But uh, for now, we can follow Marx's thought process, or we should, because that's how the book is written. And it's still, of course, useful. So for the sake of the rest of, I guess, the book, assume that money is explicitly tied to gold. So now that we have that out of the way, I'll move on to money as a means of circulation. So the exchange of commodities in money form is in this chapter is investigated through CMC. So commodity into money, back into commodity. In this theoretical, the commodity producer is not alienated at the point of production. So you make your commodity, and then you sell it on the market, and then you buy another commodity. This is oversimplified, of course, or sort of known as simple commodity exchange. And the reason that Marx uses simple commodity exchange is firstly because it helps abstract production to talk about, you know, just purely the point of realization, because this is what Marx does often, of course, is he abstracts most elements of the economy because it's very complicated to investigate particular specific elements. This is, of course, what Marx is doing now. It also, interestingly, represents the sort of small businesses that made up much of French and German commodity exchange at the time of Marx's life. These individuals were sort of middle-class craftsmen, typically, and owned sort of co-ops and sold their goods and were not alienated at the point of production. These workers were generally self-educated and would understand, you know, Marx's literary references to Dante, Homer, Balzac, Aristotle, etc. Initially, for instance, Marx was horrified at the reports he had heard from, from Engels and elsewhere um, of British workers and British factories and their awful conditions, because the factory had not yet really taken place as the primary method of commodity production within France and Germany. And Marx, of course, saw the factory as the future for these commodity producers, a later form of capitalism. You have to dominate these sort of middle-class craftsmen to truly proletarianize them. But nevertheless, of course, these bossless workers still labored socially for subsistence. They were, they were still ruled by money. And many of them were quite radical. They were quite represented in the First International, for instance. Which is to say that, like, they were still exploited. There is this dream to, have, like, go back to that point in which there still is commodity production and circulation and everyone is still ruled by money and makes subsistence through commodity exchange. It's just that you don't have a boss. And to quote Emilia Bordica, the hell of capitalism is the firm, not that the firm has a boss. Even though, of course, you know, it's much worse to have a boss. But anyways, moving on. That's, that's sort of some of the history behind this. 
and again, as, as I don't think I said before, this was generally the class or group of people that would be most likely to read Marx's work and also sort of be affected by it because most of the proletarianized workers in Britain couldn't read. And if they did, they didn't have much time or access to read. So could, of course, not get Marx's numerous literary references, etc. So back to simple commodity exchange. So the, the first elements of this exchange is, of course, C to M. You produce your commodity, and then you sell it on the market. You realize it. Technically, this is, of course, also M to C for someone else who is trading their money for your commodity. And the final stage of this, the M to C, is where one finally gets a use value that they purchase for consumption. So this is the end of the cycle of commodity circulation and a reconciliation of the inherent contradictions between use value and exchange value that we talked about in chapter one. Importantly, we need this full commodity circuit to reconcile the contradictions of the commodity form. If you don't have someone who is finally buying a use value to consume it, then what's the point of all of this if, if we aren't distributing use values? And so, of course, it is very, very crucial that we get to this stage. Because if we don't get to this stage, the system falls apart, essentially. But the differences between C to M and M to C may seem sort of trivial, but their differences are a very crucial element of commodity exchange and the realization of value. You know, you want to spend money in some way after you've made money to get the things you have been working for. The motivations behind selling your commodity and then buying another commodity are radically different. They're a different stage of realization. Even though, of course, every sale has a buyer and every purchase has a seller, etc. But, you know, capitalism is fundamentally about the circulation of value. And you need that final stage for every single commodity exchange, every single time someone sells something. And we'll get to hoarding, of course, much later. You need finally someone to take that money and buy something else. This also, of course, relates to the social division of labor within capitalism. Again, you produce your commodity to sell it so you can buy something else. Importantly for realization, even if the commodity you made has theoretical value, it has an ideal price, there is again a lot of hassle converting or realizing that value. And importantly, the hassle involved in realization is one of the important ways that crises can come about within capitalism. As I said before, to have the final consumption stage is very, very necessary. We can think of, for instance, one factor that affects price that is not related to value relates to the delivering of a commodity to the market. There is sometimes a lot of labor required in transferring commodities to get to the person who wants to buy them. And this labor, of course, can also be exploited. This labor does not add value, obviously, because it relates to transferring of commodities, but you can still extract surplus value from the laborers transferring it. These details are related to volume two of capital, but just remember, value creation happens during the production stage only, even if you can extract surplus value from, let's say, an Amazon warehouse worker. I remember seeing on Twitter at some point someone being like, well, technically a cashier does not produce any value, so how are they being exploited? Which is a hilarious, you know, Marxist who only gets their Marxism through this like weird game of telephone online. But that's the answer to that. They don't produce value, but they can still be exploited and they can still have their surplus value extracted. Importantly, there is a constant struggle within the realization stage to ensure that it happens as soon as possible after production. 
you want to get your product to market while you're sure it still has value, and before there's another production cycle, which will, because of the tendency towards uh, production efficiency within capitalism, likely make sure that your product has less value than it did before. So time is money, of course. And the longer you go not realizing the value of a commodity into money, the more value it potentially bleeds out. This is an important element of capitalism, that there are elements of its internal contradictions within it that cause it to break down while it sort of picks itself back up. And, and one of those elements is the loss of value because of a failure of realizing your commodity and money. Something that distinguishes capitalism from all other social formations is that the products of production go back into production to make it more efficient. So, you know, in, in feudalism, the products of production go to subsistence. They aren't reinvested to ensure that the way that the serf produces different things is more efficient. That means that to survive as a capitalist, you have to convert your commodities to money as soon as possible, and you have to reinvest that money in production in the most efficient way possible. Which also importantly demonstrates a sort of non-moral analysis within Marx. If you're put in a bourgeois economic position, for whatever reason, you have to increase production to survive. So it's not about convincing the capitalist class what they're doing is immoral, because you can have a quote-unquote humane capitalist to the highest possible degree who is still surviving, and regardless, they're still put in an economic position of exploiting labor to increase productiveness. This is not, of course, to say that moral arguments don't produce those in the capitalist class who are allies to the working cause. I mean, Marx and Engels are two examples of these cases, especially Engels, but that those arguments do not themselves lead to the end of capitalism. We can also think of, you know, many small firms or businesses who don't do particularly well and to have, you know, let's say compassionate people, morally speaking, running them as an example of this point. It certainly helps if you're a capitalist, if you are, you know, an evil person who loves money and loves exploiting people. But this element of capitalism, the non-moral element, is why you can't destroy it through moral arguments. The wheel continues to spin regardless. Anyways, moving on. The chapter example of simple commodity exchange is a laborer who weaves linen to get money and then sells this linen to buy a Bible. So the realization of value in price form is obviously very stressful because your commodity might no longer satisfy a social want. And if it no longer satisfies that want, let's say again, you weave linen and there's too many people who are weaving linen. Everyone who wants to purchase linen has already bought linen. And so you go to the market and there's no one there to buy it, so you can't buy your Bible. To quote Marx, when commodities assume the money shape, they strip off every trace of their natural use value and of the particular kind of labor to which they owe their creator. So in this case, again, going back to chapter two, if you produce a commodity for exchange, you are not producing it for consumption. If you're selling your linen, it's because you don't want to use your linen. You want someone else to use it and you want money. And so you look at your linen and you see money. And this is another important element of a possibility of crisis within capitalism. The inherent contradiction between the fact that your labor is necessarily social, you know, you are laboring, you're weaving your linen, thinking about someone else who is laboring to make a Bible, and you are comparing that labor, but then the actual labor you're doing is private. Your labor only becomes public when you go into the market. And it might turn out that there are conditions that changed since you last checked the market, 
and no one wants to buy the thing you labored on. No one wants to buy your linen. I will cut it off here for the non-premium part of the episode. Uh, for $2 a month on patreon.com slash I will be going over more of the intimate details of commodity circulation. But again, if you're, if you're here and you're understanding what's going on, if you get the first three chapters, basically, you are pretty well equipped to finish the rest of the book. This is like the very difficult turtle initially. There are definitely some chapters later on that are difficult to get through. But if you've been able to get this far and let's say understand everything that's going on, especially if you've been able to read up to this point, it's about, I think, the hundredth page in the translation I'm using, then you're definitely good. You're smooth sailing, comparatively speaking. Thank you to Corey, uh, Please Don't Fire Us, and Sierra for supporting me on Patreon. And I will see you all next week.